Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am Simon. I'm your host here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, got a script written by Arnaldo. Thank you, Arnaldo. He wrote his first script, Casual Criminalist, very recently, and everyone was very nice about it in the comments. And he was pleased. And he's written me another one. So... That's all fantastic. And this one, I think, is a super clickable title. Death in the Vatican. The Swiss Guard Murders. In terms of YouTube clickable thumbnails, titles even, I think that's a winner. We'll see how this does on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, you probably don't care. Hello, podcast listeners. Thank you for being here. If you want to leave a review, that would be grand. If you're very new here, you're like, why is he asking for a review? He hasn't even done anything yet. Come on now. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Death in the Vatican by Arnaldo. We're going to explore it together. This is called A Cold Read. I've never read it before. It's going to be fun. We're going to go on an adventure to the Vatican together. I feel like, um, who's that guy from the Dan Brown novels? Robert Langdon? Robert Langdon, I want to say. He was played by Tom Hanks in those movies. Yeah, yeah. Decent movies. Not great. Not bad. Kind of fun. Tom Hanks is always good. Let's go. It's the evening of the 4th of May, 1998. Outside, a stubborn rain washes over the marble columns and travertine facades of central Rome. A tall, strong young man walks unfazed by the downpour, headed determinedly toward the building next to St. Anna's Gate. An expert eye would spot the bulge protruding at the back of his trousers. Different. You know, if it was at the front, that would have a different meaning, wouldn't it? A two-expert eye could identify the bulge as belonging to a semi-automatic Sig Sauer 75 handgun. You'd have to be a mega expert. You just see a bulge at the back of someone's trousers, you'd be like, that guy's packing, specifically, the Sig Sauer 75. Is that how you say Sig Sauer? I'm not even sure. I only read it in books. It's almost 8.45pm, and the young man is about to enter the building. At 8.46pm, the phone rings in the Esteman's flat. Mrs. Gladys answers the call, but quickly hands over the receiver to her husband, Colonel Alwa Esteman. At the other end of the line, a family friend wants to congratulate Alwa. Good job, mate. It doesn't happen every day to be appointed commander of the Swiss Guard. The phone then falls silent for a couple of seconds. The friend is puzzled. He can only hear some voices in the distance. It's Gladys and someone else. And then a bang, and then another, and then more. 4th of May, 1998. Just before 9pm, death has landed in Vatican City. That was, that was quite the intro. I feel like that's like a cold open, you know, like you're watching an episode of House, you know, where they're like, the, they set up the mystery for the episode in that first scene. Done. Nicely done, Arnaldo. The Smallest Army If you can dedicate only a few minutes of your attention to today's story, here are the key elements. <laughs> On the evening of the 4th of May 1998, three bodies were found inside the Swiss Guard officers' lodgings within the walls of Vatican City State, adjacent to St. Anna's Gate. The bodies belong to Alwar Esteman, Swiss national, age 43, appointed commander of the tiny Vatican army that very day. His wife, Gladys Meza Romero, Venezuelan, age 49, archivist of the Venezuelan embassy to the Holy See. Cedric Tournay, also Swiss, age 23, vice corporal of the Swiss Guard. The cause of death? Multiple gunshot wounds, apparently shot by Tournay's service pistol, a Sig Sauer 75. The case was closed by the Vatican Magistrature in February 1999. The official version of events was that Tornay had shot Esteban and his wife before committing suicide. The motive was explained as the corporal bearing a grudge against his commander, which erupted into a fit of rage. Well, that's the gist of it. If you have to go, feel free to do so. Hey, Arnaldo, what are you doing? No! 
Don't leave. Don't turn off. That would be like 10% of the video. It'd be rubbish for my analytics and no one will see casual criminalist videos anymore. Stay, please. The watch time matters. And I think it matters on podcasts as well. Please don't leave me. <laughs> ah, shame though, because you would miss some pretty juicy alternative theories about the killing, some of which may actually be founded on more than wild conspiracies. More interestingly, they shed light on some of the plots and secrets which have been lurking for decades inside the Vatican City State. That's another reason I think this will do particularly well on YouTube, because I have made videos, I made a couple of videos about, like, you know, typical top 10 fair, 10 secret objects that the Vatican might be hiding. And people love that sh That is always so popular. I like conspiracies by the Vatican. Million views. Boom, boom. Every time. You know it's a good one. Winston Churchill once described the largest country on earth, the Soviet Union, as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But the same could be applied to the smallest country on earth, Vatican City state. The tiny independent nation nested inside Rome, Italy, measures only 0.44 square kilometers. In US measurements, that's 0.17 square miles. I feel like this is not super clear in my mind how big that is. I feel like acres. Like I know acres for some reason. I think as when I was growing up, it was like, how big's the garden? It's this many acres. Or like, even now, it's like, I just, that's how I think. Like, I have a rough idea of how big an acre is. Like, whereas, a, I guess I can imagine like a half, half a square kilometer. But it's quite hard compared to like an acre for some reason. The population is suitably minuscule, just 840 inhabitants. In US measurements, that's 840 inhabitants. This Lilliputian elective monarchy, ruled by His Holiness the Pope, can boast its own government, its own judiciary, a police force, the Vatican Gendarmerie, and of course, its own army, the Swiss Guard. I think you've just covered everyone's jobs there, haven't you? I mean, how many? It's 840 residents, it's not a lot. Does that include, like, foreign nationals? Like, I mean, because there's going to be, like, the uh, the Venezuelan embassy women. Do they count? I guess. That's surely got to be most of it, right? Although, mo I guess most countries don't have an embassy. If it's just half a square kilometer, they're not going to have, like, embassies and stuff. It's going to be too small. Maybe they'll have, like, little rooms which are embassies. That'd be weird. The elite corps, the, that's the uh, Vatican Gendarmerie, or the Swiss Guard, or whatever it is. Wait, the Swiss Guard. The Swiss Guard's the elite corps. Sorry, I got confused. Numbers around 150 troops and has protected popes since 1506. These soldiers are mostly known for their ceremonial role during official receptions and visits, where they can be seen marching in brightly colored uniforms, allegedly designed by Michelangelo. That sounds like a maximum level, allegedly. <laughs> and also, these guys, you definitely know what they look like. Jen will probably put a picture up on the screen if you're watching it, but they got super colorful uniforms and weird hats. And do they carry big swords or guns or something? They're kind of like old. They're kind of like the the Vatican equivalent of those uh, the people who guard the Queen in England. What are they called? I really should remember that. Like the Queen is it Queen's Guards? Is it that simple? I think it could be that. The Swiss Guard does not shun modern gear, though. When acting as bodyguards, the Pope they dress in standard grey suits and are equipped with radios, earpieces, firearms, and pepper spray. But even when dressed like extras at a renaissance fair, these soldiers should not be underestimated as joining their ranks is not easy. New recruits must be Swiss nationals, Catholic, with an irreproachable reputation. They should be male, aged 19 to 26, and at least 1.76 meters in height or 5 foot 9 inches. Most importantly, they must have successfully completed military training in Switzerland, a course lasting 200 and 60 days. It is kind of weird. Why is it? Why are the Swiss people protecting the Pope inside Italy? I, I assume there's some like really logical historical explanation for it, but it is kind of weird. 
It's kind of racist, if I'm honest. Like, the Pope only wants Swiss guards. <laughs> Sounds like racism to me. They sign up to appear for a period of at least 26 months, during which they receive a basic pay of $20,000 per year. That's not an awful lot. Which is rather low for Swiss standards. Yeah, Switzerland's like super... Isn't it like the richest country in the world? Like, I mean, per person? I mean, that's got to be like Qatar or something, right? I think it's a Middle Eastern country with tons of oil. But like, Switzerland doesn't have tons of oil. They're just rich. Plus, they must adhere to quite restrictive moral guidelines and perform grueling shifts. These elements have contributed to widespread stress, tension, and resentment against amongst the guard factors, which may have played a role in the 1998 triple killing. Murders in the Vatican Besides the Esteban's unnamed family friend on the phone, the first witness of the event was one of the neighbors, a nun. After hearing the commotion coming from the guards' barracks, she noticed that her neighbor's apartment door was open. The nun walked in, and the first thing she noticed was the copious amount of blood splattered all over the floor. The, nun's immediate, the nun immediately called for help. High-ranking members of the Vatican Gendarmerie, alongside a Vatican spokesperson, Joaquim Navarro Valls, rushed to the scene. They found the body of Alwa Esteban struck down with shots to the shoulder and the face. Gladys had taken a bullet to the torso. The young vice corporal, Cedric Tornet, apparently kneeled before slumping forward to the ground, around and entered his mouth, and then made an exit wound on the back of his head. The six-hour pistol was found underneath his body. That looks like a suicide, but I'm guessing, because there's a lot of pages left, that there's a doubt around that, and it could, I mean, you could, that could be framed, right? They could definitely frame that. Just before midnight, Navarro Valls and his office issued their first press release. The information that has emerged so far suggests Vice Corporal Cedric Tornay suffered a sudden fit of madness. These murders were the first violent deaths to happen inside the Vatican in the past 150 years. There has been much theorizing that two popes, Pius XI and John Paul I, may have been poisoned in 1939 and 1978 respectively. Holy sh**. I had no idea. Someone killed, I mean, allegedly poisoned popes? Wow. That's intense. They must really not like them. If you were religious, you'd be like, oh my god, I killed the pope. <laughs> They're not going to forgive that. And isn't Catholicism if you just say, like, I'm real sorry, and they're like, it's okay, my son. Just apologize to God and you will go to heaven. It's like, yeah, but I killed the Pope. Not for that. That is like, wait, they do have unforgivable sins. I believe they actually do, and I believe killing the Pope is one of them. Am I imagining that, or is that a real thing? Comments, let me know. I really do believe that, like, killing the Pope is one of those things which is unforgivable, and I think there are, like, two others. The Catholic Church is really intense about killing a pope. I was talking to a friend of mine last night. We went out for drinks. And he's uh, Spanish. And he's Catholic. And he was talking about the pope. And they make they have this like thing called endictus or whatever. Or some like, Latin thing. Which means like the pope has spoken. Like the pope has said something. And uh, that's it. Like the decision is done. It's game on. No one can say anything against it. So like um, you could, he could say like evolution is real and everyone would have to be like yes although the catholics are okay with evolution um and that's it god has spoken essentially through the pope and it rarely happens i think he said it last happened like 150 years ago which i found pretty crazy that's pretty powerful maybe the pope should be like yo emdictus or whatever contraception's okay that would be a great one or like emdictus homosexuality also okay that'd be really good i feel like it's been 150 years popey come on you can do it be a big boy and then all these conservative people or whoever who don't like it, they'll be like, oh, but I actually disagree. The Pope will be like, it's from f***ing God, mate. God said it. You're God through my lips. How crazy is that? And they'll be like, yeah, okay, I guess. Because <laughs> it's God. And then they'll poison the Pope. <laughs> 
But again, that's just speculation, uh, the poisoning of the popes. If we talk of confirmed assassinations, we have to go back to the 15th of November, 1848. That's when an assassin stabbed in the throat, throat Count Pellegrino Rossi, recently appointed Minister of the Police of the Papal States. But following the ensuing inquiry, two men were executed and six more were incarcerated, but the case may not have been conclusively solved, as further research implicated at least another possible culprit. In any case, it seems that the assassination was planned within pro-Republican circles who wanted to strike at the papal government. Rossi's fate may have befallen his predecessor, Mr. Odorado. Fabry, had he not resigned in September 1848. Fun fact, Mr. Fabry was a very distant ancestor of yours truly, Arnaldo the writer. What? I can only think that I can only think that he dodged the, dodged the bullet rather than the dagger so I could be born and mildly bore you with this aside. I like it, Arnaldo. That's cool. What a crazy world. But let's return to our story. Did you did you do that? I, I don't know if maybe you just like I don't know my grandma did like this big ancestry tree of my family going back a long time and then i did it um on ancestry you know there's that website ancestry my, my nan did it like way back in the day like where you had to go and, like look at books and but now i did this a few years ago because they were a sponsor and it's so compelling i just got super into it you'd just be going and then you'd find records and you'd tie them all together and it'd be like yo 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 someone else was working on ancestry dna and they made this tree and it connects to yours <laughs> Do you want to connect it? You'd be like, yeah, I do. And you're like going all the way back. And uh, my dad immigrated to the UK. So I have nothing on that side. You can't find anything there because this was just uh, UK records. And so I went on my mum's side and got all the way back to the 1850s when they immigrated from Germany. And I'm like, that's wild. I had no idea. I mean, I'm not going to mention my mum's maiden name on the show because that's literally one of those questions that they ask you when you're doing the... uh, the, uh, you know, when you phone up your bank and you've forgotten your password, they're like, what's your mum's maiden name? Because I'm not going to mention it, but it's German sounding. And I'm like, shit, that's wild. I never even thought about it. And then you're like, that's cool. I got back to like 1840 something and then it went to Germany and the trail went cold. I mean, I could have then gone to like through any of them, but I just traced the same name as far back as I could go, which was, uh, this was such an aside. This was way longer than Arnaldo's aside, which was way more interesting. I'm so sorry. Let's carry on. <laughs> On the 5th of May 1998, Vatican spokesman Navarro Valls convened a press conference just outside the Vatican borders. He then proceeded to let... Can you hear that? There is a man just absolutely leaning on his car horn outside my window. Why? Why? They heard you, mate. They heard you. All right, thank you. Trying to do a podcast here, friend! I look up because I'm in a basement and the windows, it's like a semi-submerged basement, so the window's like at about my head height. Like... But when I'm standing up, so it's like up there. Can you... I'm just pointing. Oh my god, stop with the asides, fact boy. Let's go. Vice Corporal Tornay rang Esteban's doorbell, walked in, first killed the commander and then his wife with his service weapon before pointing the barrel in his mouth and pulling the trigger for the last time. When asked about the motive, Navarreval spoke of a fit of madness. Apparently, Tornay had been reprimanded by Esteban back in February as he had spent two nights of heavy drinking outside the Vatican walls without permission. Uh-oh! Because of this disciplinary incident, Tornay had been denied a Medal of Merit which he was due to receive during a ceremony on May the 6th. Yeah, no doubt, because he were, like, went AWOL. That's definitely not allowed if you're in, like, the military or something. You can't just go off on your own just, like, because you fancy spending some time getting drunk in Italy. It's like you've got a job. You can't do that. No one's... No one's they should have punished you more. They just took away a reward. 
The corporal had expressed his frustration in a letter to his mother, which was interpreted as a suicide note. After three years, six months, and three days, they haven't given me the good service medal, so I've just got to stop other injustices. That which I'm about to do, I'm forced to do for the good of the corps. Yeah, that sounds like, I mean, that sounds like he's up to, up to do, do some no good, doesn't it? That definitely sounds like he's like, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to get up to some shit. You're going to find this and you're going to put this together. Right? Navarro Valls added some revealing details on the character of the corporal. Apparently, he was quick to lose his temper, had difficulty in following orders and maintaining discipline. His behavior had become increasingly erratic in the days prior to the tragedy. He had smashed a chair in his quarters. He had paid three visits to a local tailor and to the consulate of Mauritius without a real reason. <laughs> it's a bit weird. It's just like, what you did? Tonight I just felt like I'm into the Mauritius consulate. Just hang out. I guess they do have consulates in Vatican City then. Mauritius? Where is Mauritius? What is Mauritius? It doesn't, str you know, I don't really know anything about it. I'm fairly sure I should know where it is, but if someone said it was in the Caribbean, or said it was in Africa, or said it was in Asia, I'd be like, yeah, 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 Mauritius. I feel like it's a holiday destination. Do people go on holiday to Mauritius? It's not in Europe, is it? That would be embarrassing. This is how these events were described in a later official report. But if I'm allowed to chip in, perhaps he was considering leaving behind the whole Swiss guard gig and relocating to a tropical island. Well, okay. I'm guessing Mauritius is a tropical island that is not in Europe, fact boy. Uh, perhaps wearing a tailored white linen suit, perhaps. Besides these questionable details, the Vatican Inquiry found evidence that Tornay made frequent use of cannabis, and a later autopsy discovered that he suffered from a large arach arachnoid cyst in his left frontal lobe. What the f is that? Is that like a. Sp isn't an arachnoid like a spider? Why does he have a spider cyst in his brain? That's scary. According to the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, arachnoid cysts are fluid-filled sacs that may manifest next to the brain or spinal cord. That doesn't sound good. It sounds like almost as bad as a tumor, but not a tumor. Can they drain those? That would be nice. Primary arachnoid cysts are present at birth, resulting from developmental abnormalities that arise during the early weeks of gestation. Secondary arachnoid cysts are less common and may derive from a head injury, meningitis, or a brain tumor. Uh-oh, none of those are good things. It's like what things you don't want to hear you have head injuries, meningitis, or a brain tumor. That is, a, that is, yeah, not good. It's not clear from publicly available sources if Tornay suffered from a primary or a secondary cyst. In any case, typical symptoms of this ailment include headaches, nausea, seizures, hearing and visual disturbances, vertigo, difficulties with balancing and walking, and generalized neurological dysfunction. Yeah, if there's, there's, if there's places you don't want cysts growing, it's your brain. It's not good. It's, it's not, you know. If things go wrong in your brain, it's like it begins to affect everything because the brain's really important for keeping all your shit together. Thus, investigators claimed that the cyst may have played a role in Tornay's erratic and unpredictable behavior. I should specify that the detail of the cyst emerged only uh, only months after the press conference. Back in May, Italian journalists had immediately started to doubt the decision declaration spun by Navarro Valls. It seemed more like Vatican officials had reached their conclusions far too soon. Were they a cover-up for some more unsavory? even sinister story. Now, just before we continue with today's episode, I do want to thank today's sponsor, Smart Arse and Sass. Yes, life is a lot easier with a good sense of humor. And no one ever said it had to be rated PG. Sometimes it feels good to let out our inner Smart Arse and drop a few of those F-bombs. Look, you watch this show. You see how many bleeps there are in it. I know it to be true. Smart Arse and Sass is a subscription box meant for people who are a little bit unashamedly mouthy. <laughs> Indeed. 
Uh, items that come in the box are curated and personally tested by the SNS team, a group of people who want you to have a laugh in your day. SNS partners with some of the best small businesses to bring you trendy and snarky items every single month. Now, now there are a few options. You've got the big box, which is $49.95 a month, and it contains a mouthy shirt and a bunch of other snarky items. Uh, seven to nine unique items, by the way, and has a value of over $90, which is fantastic. There are other subscription sizes available. Use code CASUAL for 10% off first-time subscription orders. That can't be combined with any other offer, and it's not valid on shop orders. Again, code CASUAL for 10% off first-time subscription orders. Just go to smartassandsass.com. And now back to today's episode. Agent Werder the first conspiracy theories emerged almost immediately, all of which were never substantiated. Maybe it was a crime of passion. Cedric Tornay may have had an affair with Mrs. Gladys, but it all ended badly. I mean, maybe she is old enough to be his mum, which, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say that never happens, but it would make it more un, un, it makes it less likely or maybe he was having an affair with Esteman. after the commander had started bedding another fellow guard cedric had enacted his revenge don't know about that catholic church wouldn't be happy with that actually scratch that this was an all this was all a complex conspiracy plotted by a cabal of swiss noblemen traditionally swiss guard commanders were selected among the aristocracy but alwa Esteman was a lowly commoner a peasant so he deserved to die <laughs> the deaths of gladys and tawny where collateral damage is part of a cover-up seems unlikely. On the 8th of May, German tabloid Berliner Courier came out with yet another conspiracy theory, one that actually had some meat around the bone. According to the Courier, Alwa Esteman had once served as a double agent on the payroll of the Stasi, the feared secret police of East Germany. From 1979 to 1984, the Swiss Guard officer had filed seven reports back to the Stasi posted on the night train from Rome to Innsbruck, Austria. The German paper speculated that Esteman was the notorious Agent Werder, a Stasi spy deployed behind the Iron Curtain, but never conclusively identified. So was this theory even plausible? Perhaps this is the right moment to introduce a bit more background about Commander Alwar and his wife, lest they remain only two names listed under victims in a newspaper column. Let us start with Gladys Meza Romero. Articles about the Vatican murders tend to overlook Mrs. Meza, focusing on the personalities of the two military men involved, but allow me to say that she was probably the most formidable character in this entire story. Wow, what have we what have we dug up? Information on her life is hard to come by, but I stumbled upon some Spanish-language articles as well as a blog entry written by her goddaughter, Mrs. Yasmin Lopez. Arnaldo, color me impressed. Are you you're, you're Italian. Do you speak Spanish? I mean, I know Google Translate's amazing, but like finding stuff. Google Translate's great when you've got to the website that you want to be on and you translate it, but searching and stuff can be tricky because I don't know, you can translate it in Google, but then you put it uh, in Google Translate and then put it in Google, but it's like not always going to come up perfectly. If you get what I mean. I run into this with Czech all the time. Like I'll be like I don't know how to say that. I don't know what that is. So I'll like Google Translate it and then search that in Google, but it often doesn't work very well. 
Gladys was born into a large family in the small town of Urica, northeastern Venezuela. The Mazes were not particularly wealthy, so Gladys moved to Caracas looking for a job. Here, she attended the local police academy, graduating as one of the first female officers in the country. While serving in the force, Gladys made good use of her good looks and her natural elegance. She started a parallel career as a fashion model, a career which eventually brought her to Italy. Once in Rome, Gladys did not content herself with strutting across the catwalk. She enrolled in law school at the Pontifical Lateran University, which she, where she would eventually become a lawyer specializing in canonical law. That is quite impressive. I see why she's formidable, for sure. In parallel, Gladys attended Italian classes at the Dante Alighieri Institute. It was during one of these classes that she met and fell in love with a strapping Swiss officer, Alwa Esteman. Now, Let's talk about the commander himself. Alwar had joined the Swiss Guard as a private in 1980, despite having served as a commissioned officer for four years in the Swiss Army. That's got to be pretty tough. Like, as an, you, so you're an officer in the Swiss Army, and then you join as a private somewhere else? I guess it's got to be a bit of a different career path. It wouldn't be like you're an officer in the Navy, and then you go to be a private in the Army. I don't feel that's happens because there's like equivalence ranks and stuff, aren't there? On the 13th of May 1981, Alwar was right next to Pope John Paul II when Turkish gunman Ali Agkar fired against the pontiff. Agkar was a member of the Turkish Islamist far-right organization the Grey Wolves and claimed that his was a gesture to protest the imperialism of both the West and the USSR. The attack was too sudden for Esteban to fully shield the Pope, who was badly wounded in the stomach and left hand, but his intervention may have saved John Paul's life. From that moment on, the Pope and Esteban were particularly close. According to journalist Ferruccio Pinotti, this is why the pontiff trusted Esteban with a special mission, traveling to Warsaw and Danzig, Poland, to coordinate the delivery of unidentified sensitive supplies for local Catholic trade, uni- uh, for local Catholic trade union Solid Arnosk. Or solidarity. Whatever the nature of that material, it was destined to support the trade union in opposing the Polish communist regime. Over the following years, Esteban rose through the ranks, becoming a lieutenant colonel in 1989. Allegedly, Esteban had been selling papal secrets to the Stasi all the time. A devoted Catholic and supporter of the papal policy toward the Soviet bloc, Awar was not motivated by ideology, but simply by cold, hard cash money. At that time, the salary of a Swiss Guard officer was a mere $900 per month, and he could have done with some extra income on the side. Why are they paying these Swiss Guards so little money? You're the Catholic Church. There's one thing you've got loads of. Money. You have so much money. There's people all around the world, like, giving you money for some reason. Pay them more than $900 a month, you cheap bastards. God, I'm going to hell. If it was real. Ah. I should definitely clarify the links between the commander and the Stasi have never been conclusively proven. Nice work. However, this theory is not entirely fanciful. Seven years after the killing in September 2005, declassified documents from the Stasi archives would prove that the secret police had planted at least eight agents inside the Vatican. (laughs) It's like 1% of their population are secret agents. From the Stasi specifically. Just one secret organization. Active from April 1974 to November 1989, their main job was to keep tabs on the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Okie dokie. 
Back then, he was known as Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, later as Pope Benedict the 16th. I'm reading the uh, Roman numerals, so it takes me a minute. According to a Stasi file quote, Ratzinger is seen at the Vatican as one of the staunchest opponents of communism, which was enough of a motivation to spy on him, of course. Out of the eight agents, one was identified as a Benedictine priest, another as a religious journalist, but the identity of the other six remains elusive. Could one of them have been the infamous Verda? Could one of them have been Alois Esterman? And if so, what was the link to his violent death? I like how this is turning into a bit of a spy story. I love a spy story. On May the 9th, 1998, the ubiquitous spokesman Navarro Valls shut down the speculations published by the German press. Here in the Vatican, we're not even considering such a hypothesis. Unfortunately, this is not the first time that lies have been written about an honest man. Case closed. Parenthesis open. Question mark. Parenthesis closed. In February 1999, Vatican judge... Gianluigi Maroni officially closed the case. Arnaldo, you sometimes include these nice little pronunciation things for me, like the one right here, highlighted in yellow. Gianluigi, if that is how you say it, would have been a good one. He listed 10 forensic medical reports, 5 reports from the gendarmerie, 38 witness testimonies, and several documents from official agencies, all supporting the initial conclusions communicated to the press as early as the 5th of May. On the 7th of February, a Roman newspaper published an interview with the mother of Cedric Tournay, Mrs. Muget Badat. Muget Badat. Muget, Muget Bodat. Thank you, Arnaldo. Understandably, she denounced the official inquiry, which laid culpability on her son. According to her, the inquiry, quote, was rife with concealments, contradictions, and lies made in the attempt to hide an unspeakable truth. She claimed to be in possession of several independent forensic reports which contradicted the dynamic of the event, but for the moment, she would not reveal them. In November of the same year, more dissenting voices came forward. A group of disaffected Vatican priests, identified only as the Disciples of Truth, put forth a new theory in their book, Blood Lies in the Vatican. According to this theory, Alwar Esteban and his wife were the victims of a power struggle to seize control of the Swiss Guard. In one corner, a secretive Masonic lodge hiding inside the Roman Curia, i.e. the administrative body of the Holy See. In the opposite corner, the influential and controversial Catholic movement, Opus Dei. I have a feeling with like 800 people and half a square kilometer, you'd be like, where do you hide a Masonic lodge? I mean, you'd really, it's a really small area to hide a lodge. According to the disciples, Enderman and Gladys were on the side of Opus Dei, allegedly engaging in secret international financial deals on their behalf. We are getting very spy-like. Apparently, the opposing faction moved in for the kill just hours after Esterman's appointment. A commando unit comprising a killer and two accomplices first attacked Tornay, shot him, and hid his body in a cellar. They then murdered the Estermans and dumped the corporal's body in their apparent in their apartment to stage the murder-suicide. Fans of author Dan Brown will remember how he placed the uh, an Opus Dei Cardinal amongst the roster of baddies in his novel The Da Vinci Code. I mean, yeah. I mean, no, it was a really long time ago. I definitely remember Opus Dei from that book. But that book's like 15 years old, right? It was a long time ago. However, he had the cheek and literary testicles to name the character Cardinal Aringarosa. If you alter, if you slightly alter the spelling of that name, you get Aringa Rossa. If you translate it from Italian, you get Red Herring. That's pretty clever, Dan Brown. 
hinting at the fact that he wasn't the chief antagonist after all. So were the allegations of the Disciples of Truth also a red herring? The problem with writing a Ringarosa, like everyone Italian is going to be reading that book and going, oh, it's Mr. Red Herring. And you're immediately going to be like, ah, well, uh, let's just, I don't think he's the main bad guy, is he? Unless Red Herring doesn't have a meaning in Italian. But any like English speaking Italians like Arnaldo will be like, you you down round you ruined this book for me can't you be a bit more subtle my own two cents is that yes they were again there is no evidence to corroborate these allegations and i found it very peculiar that the man who worked harder to push the official explanation of the murder suicide was spokesman joaquin navarro valls as an active and vocal member of opus day wouldn't he it have been in his interest to expose this alleged rival masonic group yeah this is this is pretty speculative isn't it but I will resist the temptation to engage in further behindology. Another book criticizing the official inquiry was published in September 2002, murdered in the Vatican by French lawyers Luc Brousselet and Jacques Verger, hired by Tournay's mother, Mrs. Bourdais. Verger, in particular, is a heavyweight of the tribunal, having represented Algerian bombers, the terrorist Carlos the Jackal, the Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie, and Slobodan Milosevic. Dude, that is a client list and a half. <laughs> you representing these dudes? Literal, like, terrible Nazi war criminal. Slobodan Milosevic? I mean, someone's got to defend him, but sh- can't you do like one Slobodan Milosevic and do like 10 good guys just to make you know you feel like less bad about defending Slobodan Milosevic the two lawyers explained how Tornay's body was transferred to Switzerland to be subjected to an independent autopsy performed by forensic pathologist Thomas Krompecher. Krompecher disputed some aspects of the first autopsy performed in the Vatican. According to that examination, Tornay's body had slumped forwards, falling onto his gun. According to the Swiss autopsy, his head had fallen backward instead. So someone messed around with his body? I guess? Yikes. And there's more. According to the lawyers, the Swiss autopic autopsy report found that Tournay's wounds were compatible with 7mm rounds, but his Sig Sauer, the official murder weapon, chambered 9mm bullets. And there's still more. The letter sent by Tournay to his parents before the killing was examined by an expert who found there to be some telling elements. For example, the stationery used was only available to the Vatican Secretariat of State and not to the Swiss Guard. That seems like a bit of an obvious error. <laughs> Tornay's mother also pointed out some of the word choices were not compatible with her son's style. For example, the letter made reference to the corporal's sister by her first name, but the young guard always used to refer to her, uh, her by her nickname, Dada. All in all, these factors were enough for the lawyers to venture yet another explanation. A killer had shot estimate to silence his knowledge of the Vatican's involvement in the arms trade. Whoa! <laughs> the Vatican's arms trade? Shit. Do you remember our secret mission to Poland in 1981? He had to oversee the delivery of sensitive cargo to the anti-communist trade union Solidarity in Poland. Are they shipping guns? That is not very Catholic. I don't know. That's I, I want to say that doesn't seem very like good religious person. But then I don't know. Do we? <laughs> is the church good? <laughs> Uh, apparently that cargo consisted of military equipment. Where are they getting it from in the first place? You're like buying it in and then shipping it out? Someone's going to notice. It's like one half square kilometer. You'd be like, where's, well, that's the guns depot. That's where we keep all the guns that we're going to be selling. Weird. Also, you have enough money. What's the motivation you got? Oh, I guess to keep the communists at bay. But just pay someone else to do it. You're the church. You got loads of money. 
So another book, another theory with very little evidence. And it wouldn't be the last. In 2004, French journalist Victor Guitard published his work, The Vatican's Secret Asians. The bulk of his volume is an interview with a priest, Giovanni Saluzzo. 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 Giovanni Saluzzo. Is that how you say it? What was his name? Was it Giovanni? Yes, yeah, the most Italian name ever. Giovanni. Giovanni Salutos. Italian? Yeah, Italian. That's right. I'm getting confused because there was the Spanish and then there's the Venezuelan woman. Oh my God. And the Swiss guards, of course. The racist. <laughs> the prelate belonged to a sort of unofficial secret service within the Catholic, cler- within the Catholic clergy. The Fellowship of Pier Pius, founded in 1907, the aim of the fellowship was to identify and report clergymen who taught unorthodox doctrines. According to author Guitard, Saluzzo was a friend of Cedric Tournay, and he claimed that the young corporal had been murdered to cover the true motives behind Esteban's assassination. Vatican authorities had discovered that he had been a Stasi double agent and decided to punish him. Well, if he'd been a Stasi double agent, why aren't you just like, look, Esteban, you're under arrest for being a Stasi double agent, and you're going to go to Vatican prison. Do they have a prison, or do they just send their prisoners to Italy? Look, either way, why do you need to assassinate him? It's not just just punish him properly. That just seems a bit unlikely. So, here we have, again, the recurring claim that the guard commander had been working for the Soviet bloc. One may wonder, why would the Vatican exact such an extreme punishment on Esteban seven years after the end of the Cold War and nine years after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Yeah, it's all a bit late. I mean, I may be a bit too naive, but how about just firing him? Yeah, or just sending him through the traditional court system. Or maybe this was even so long ago that it doesn't matter, although I get the feeling spying, like treason, is one of those crimes where they're like, no, it doesn't matter how long ago it was. Like murder. They're like, spying, it's bad. We're still coming for you. But then just take him through courts, it makes sense. This doesn't make sense, like the, the, the conspiracy with the Stasi. Let's go back now to Verges and Brosselet, the French pair of lawyers who had released that book in 2002 called Murder in the Va- Murdered in the Vatican. In January of 2005, on behalf of Cedric's mother, Morgette Badet, they appealed to a Swiss court, the Geneva Criminal Chamber, for them to reopen the case. Verges declared back then, quote, We have faced years of stubborn deafness from the Vatican. Cedric Tournay was Swiss, so it's proper to bring the case before a court in switzerland is that how it works i thought it just happens like where the i guess a court can decide whatever they want to be honest but if a crime occurs in a country generally it's prosecuted in that country rather than in the country of whatever citizen right that feels sensible because you're subject to that country's laws at that time. Before taking this decision, Morgat had sent several letters to Pope John Paul II demanding a full investigation. All of them went unanswered. Unfortunately for her, the Swiss judiciary declined the appeal. The Geneva Criminal Chamber referred to the principle of territoriality. In other words, an offense should be prosecuted where the crime was committed. That, that's why they call me the big brain. Now, you may remember that Morgett's appeal case was built on an independent autopsy carried out by a Swiss expert, Dr. Krompecher. In 2005, a journalist from the Swiss paper, Targs Antsieger, Targs Antsieger, maybe? My German pronunciation? Not so hot, or Swiss German, sorry. They had the chance to review the report. Uh, while he found that Krompecher did not entirely agree with the Vatican autopsy, he pointed out that, quote, there is no indication in Krompecher's expert report that Tournay didn't die by his own hands. No indication, therefore, of any outside force. 
Morgette and her team of lawyers were not discouraged by the setbacks. They prepared a further appeal, and in 2009, they escalated the matter to the Federal Supreme Court. Unfortunately, also this tribunal rejected the case, referring again to the principle of territoriality. Yeah, this makes sense. I mean, go sort it out in the country where this crime happened. This is a different country. What are you doing here? The Gladiator's Tale Back on the 2nd of April 2005, Pope John Paul II died and was succeeded by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who adopted the name Benedict XVI. A new pope? Some new hope, one might think. And in fact, Moriette resumed her letter-writing campaign, imploring the new pontiff to reopen the case. In November of 2011, her latest request attracted the attention of the Swiss of Swiss and Italian media, who had been quietly ignoring the case for some time. This is what may have prompted a former Italian secret agent to step forward and relate his version of the events to a Sardinian local newspaper. The agent in question was Antonio Arconte, codename codename G71, a former member of the military secret police and of Gladio. Members of Gladio, colloquially known as gladiators, were part of a NATO or coordinated uh, part of NATO coordinated sleeper cells whose role was to launch an insurrection against the Red Army in the case of Soviet invasion. I'd actually, I've actually made a video. Arnaldo actually wrote the script for said video on, I believe it was my Explore channel, which no one watches. Um, but if you want to learn more about that, you could do it there. This is my personal opinion, but it's kind of an Italian pastime to involve Gladio whenever the official explanation of an event appears unsatisfactory to the general public. Yes, yeah, like, ah, yeah, spies, aliens. <laughs> it's like, we don't know, so just let's throw it all in there. Just like History Channel seems to explain everything in history with the cry of aliens. Well, we tend to explain any aspect. We tend to explain any aspect of Italy's murky past with a shout of Gladio. Uh, or Gladio. I don't know. Arnaldo, I'm so sorry. I don't know what it is. Gladio? Gladio sounds right. Gladio! Gladio! But at least in this case, it was a former Gladio member who willingly decided to get involved. By end of 1997, Arconte had had long since retired from his duties and maintained a website dedicated to his experiences as a gladiator. He also wrote about alternate theories on past events of Italian history, among others the attempted assassination on John Paul II. Arconte did not believe the official version, i.e. that the perpetrator Ali Agher had, sh- had shot on behalf of the Turkish far-right group the Grey Wolves. That's when he received an email in German signed by one Werder, who claimed to be a Vatican insider. The sender mentioned that he could provide some new information about the assassination, but also stated that he was at risk of being made to disappear, as he knew too many dangerous things about too many dangerous people. Arconte and Werder agreed to meet in secret in March of 1998 in a coastal town not far from Rome. During the encounter, Werder told his truth about the attempt on John Paul's life. Acker and the Grey Wolves had been manipulated by the Bulgarian secret services, who had been in turn controlled by the KGB. This is elaborate, so the assassination was a Soviet plot to eliminate a pope that was too vocal against communism. Arconte asked Verda how he knew about the plot, and he did not reveal it. He only, hesitate, he only reiterated that he was in danger, and added that he was expecting a promotion at work as a means to keep quiet. But clearly, he did not trust his superiors, as he was looking to escape the Vatican and relocate to the United States. The gladiator and the Vatican insider parted ways a few weeks later. Arconte learned about the assassination of Alwar Esteman and drew his own conclusions to quote, Alwar was the infamous Verda double agent, and he had been eliminated due to his knowledge of the truth behind John Paul's shooting. 
This sounds like a conspiracy theory, and I don't really think there's enough evidence. Like, at least from what I've heard, it's just kind of one dude's word and who might like telling stories because he has a website telling stories of his days as a gladiator. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's not impossible. It does seem quite reasonable, I guess. I'm not entirely against it. I just don't think there's enough evidence to know either way. And it's kind of like innocent or proven guilty, isn't it? If there's not enough evidence, you shouldn't assume that it's true until there is enough evidence. You should start at a position of it's not true, right? So I don't, don't think it's true. I don't think there's enough evidence yet. Maybe there's more. Now, former spy Arconte is not the only one who claims that the Soviets wanted the Pope dead. So, is it plausible? Again, I'd be maybe too naive for this world, and probably wouldn't last two hours in a world of spies and secrets, but here's how I see it. Country A schemes to assassinate the head of Country B, and they fail. Seventeen years later, an employee of Country B threatens to expose Country A, which in the meanwhile has crumbled, fragmented, and dissolved. Ergo, someone in Country B decides to eliminate that employee. Why would they? And even if they did not heart that person, how about they fire him and pay those miserable wages to somebody else? Thankfully, the onslaught of speculation, conspiracy theories, and books capitalizing on the Vatican murders died down in 2010s. But Tornay's mother has not yet abandoned her quest to find out more about her son's death. In December of 2019, her new lawyer, Laura Sugro, issued a formal request to the Vatican judiciary to release their 1999 confidential court files. This was a needed first step to evaluate how the Vatican had reached its conclusions before filing a request to reopen the inquiry, Sergo's plea was ignored for 16 months. Arnaldo puts an exclamation mark there, but I'm like, it's confidential files of an individual nation. <laughs> they don't have to release them if they don't want to, unless there's some law that makes them. But then it's their country. I'm pretty sure it's like, uh, yeah, okay, you ask for the files. Fascinating. <laughs> You're not getting them, though, are you? So I, I just, I don't, I'm not even going to reply. I don't care. And this takes us to May 2021. We are getting, this all happened so long ago. And we're getting so close to the present day. Uh, this is when Mr. When Mrs. Sergo turned directly to the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal Parolin, asking for his intervention to unlock proceedings. The secretary apparently took this request very seriously and asked the Vatican's tribunal, asked the Vatican Tribunal's president to pay particular attention to the plea sent by Mrs. Bourdin later that uh, and her lawyer. And since then, and at the time of writing this episode, the court files have not yet been released. I don't think they're being released. They're confidential court files, and especially if they do have something incriminating. I mean, this does really add to the conspiracy vibe, doesn't it? I mean, I, I personally think there's probably some kind of conspiracy going on here. I don't know what it is, and it does seem a bit, like, late and weird. I don't... I, there's definitely something going on, right? There's too many moving pieces. When there's too many moving pieces, you're like, something weird is up. There's more to this than meets the eye. I don't know what that is, though. I don't think it's any of these, like, starsy things. I think it's probably something more simple, but I don't know what. Conclusion. Well, let's find out what Arnaldo thinks, shall we? The case of the Swiss Guard murders had been, has been officially closed since 1999, but the story's far from over. With its elements of alleged intrigue and violence within the Vatican walls, it was bound to attract and inspire a flurry of conflicting stories. We heard about the love triangle, the gay love triangle, the internal power struggle between Opus Dei and Freemasons, without forgetting the spy stories according to which Cedric, Gladys, and Alwa were murdered because he was a supporter of the Soviet bloc, or someone who traded weapons to the enemies of the Soviet bloc, or someone who wanted to denounce 
the Soviet bloc. Without going as far as creating a new theory of my own, I should point out that the official version of events is in its is itself rather flimsy. It was based on rather rushed conclusions which were reached with circumstantial evidence, no witnesses and no confessions. And there is that detail of the 7mm bullet wounds found on Tournay's body, a detail that will be taken officially into account if the case is reopened. Or we can like, did you not, you didn't want to consider it the first time? Gotta wait for that case to be reopened, huh? All we can do is consider the official version to be the only credible one, at least until a new verdict is reached. Whatever the outcome of a possible retrial, I sincerely hope it can at least provide some peace of mind to the mother of a slain young soldier who was asking, who has been asking for the truth, or at least a re-examination of the truth, for the past 24 years. Or maybe slain, maybe slain, or maybe he killed himself. We don't know. We're trying to find out. I think something's up. Or maybe there's not. I don't know. Dismembered Appendices number 1 Amongst the many possible theories and explanations I've come across, there was one which didn't make it to the final cut, not because it wasn't interesting, but because it was simply a suggestion. It came from an article in a British online news outlet called The Church Times. Oh my god, I remember that. It's not just online. I remember I used to work in a newsagent when I was a kid, and there was like one copy of The Church Times would come in, and it would go to, I don't know, maybe it was the vicar of one of the one of the churches i lived in a small village but for some reason i like six churches and there was a church times and you'd always get that church times just one copy every week or every couple of weeks or something the suggestion was what if alwar's wife gladys was the real target of an assassination and subsequent cover-up gladys was a former police officer and a current embassy official as a lawyer expert in canonical law she had supported the cause for the beautification of a venezuelan nun other sources stated that she alongside alwar had been involved in financial deals for opus day could any one of these exp- experiences have brought her into a collision with a dangerous faction i realize i'm slipping into conspiracy mode so I'll just move swiftly to appendix number two. Not really related to today's case, but I mentioned in passing the mysterious death of Pope Jean Paul I in 1979. This Pope had oh the guy was poisoned, allegedly. And there was another Pope who was poisoned a few decades before, allegedly. This Pope had been elected merely 33 days prior, and there are suspicions that he may have been poisoned, perhaps due to his desire to start investigations on the shady dealings of the Vatican Bank, then headed by Cardinal Marcinicus. Marcinicus. Movie buffs who love to hate The Godfather Part 3 may be familiar with a fictionalized version of these events, crowbarred into the plot of the film. In it, the equivalent of Pope John Paul I is friends with the Corleone family. He is poisoned by banker by a banker cardinal who is then bumped off by a mafia henchman infiltrate, who's infiltrated the Vatican. Reality may not have been as dramatic, but perhaps our listeners and viewers may want to hear more about John Paul I in a future episode. And let let me know. Let us know. Let me and Arnaldo know in the comments below if you would like to uh, to see that one. And as always, thank you so much for being here, watching if you're on YouTube, uh, listening if you're on the podcasts, reviews, likes, subscribes. They're all very welcome. And I'll see you next time.